0: You're listening to Decisive Point. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. I'm talking with Major Ryan J. Bridley and Colonel Kevin W. Matthews today, authors of The Impact of Antarctic Treaty Challenges on the U.S. Military, which was published in the Autumn 2023 issue of Parameters. Bridley is an active duty U.S. Army officer and operations officer for the U.S. Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Matthews is an active duty U.S. Army officer and the commander of the U.S. Army Geospatial Intelligence Battalion. Welcome to Decisive Point, Ryan and Kevin.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a bunch.
0: Let's talk about the Antarctic Treaty and the U.S. military. You list three challenges in your article. Let's walk through them. Tell us about rising sea levels and treaty membership.
1: The Antarctic Treaty was created in the 50s to prevent the spread of the Cold War and facilitate scientific research and cooperation. And it was mostly successful, but the continent is now facing a challenge with a warming global temperature. And that's because when sunlight reaches the Earth, some sunlight is reflected into space thanks to locations with light-colored surfaces like Antarctica. However, a growing amount of reflected sunlight heat is unable to leave the atmosphere due to it being absorbed by emissions like carbon dioxide, And these emissions prevent reflected sunlight heat from leaving the atmosphere, which thereby traps that heat with the Earth's surface, especially water, which accounts for 90% of the globe's surface heat. And this has led to multiple glaciers melting into the ocean, and so much so that in 2019, it was recorded that Antarctica lost an average of 200 ice-filled Olympic-sized swimming pools per minute, according to a NASA glaciologist. And unfortunately, it looks like that even if Paris Agreement pledges are met, the Earth's global temperature will still rise two and a half degrees by the year 2100. And for reference, the Earth was around this projected temperature three to five million years ago. And during that time, sea
2: levels were 10 to 20 meters higher than they are today. So one of the challenges with rising sea level, approximately 80 percent of the world's population lives along the coastline. And that coastline is independent of the economic wellness of the countries that those cities and populated areas actually inhabit. And so when we look at sea rise, this is something that's going to directly impact population centers across Africa and South Asia. And the challenges that are already there when it comes to delivering essential services securing the population, maintaining the sovereignty from different insurgent groups or activists that are looking to use terrorism to overthrow the governments, rising sea level becomes a strategic concern as it puts additional stresses on those populations.
0: What do we need to know about environmental and resource conservation?
1: Illegal fishing, the back touches on the resource conservation. Illegal fishing is a tough issue to address because a lot of it takes place in international waters, where state navies and coast guards have limited, if any, jurisdiction. And that's if those states affected even have the resources and logistics to pursue illegal fishing vessels, because many do not. What we're seeing instead is that often non-government organizations, or NGOs for short, are the ones trying to detain those conducting illegal fishing. However, NGO ships are greatly outnumbered by illegal fishing vessels because those vessels number in the thousands globally and are moving across vast nautical spaces. So to pivot for a few seconds, squid is consumed in Japan and South Korea. And in 2018, it was discovered the number of squid in South Korea and in Japanese waters decreased by 80% from the number of squid they contained 15 years prior. And this was largely due to 700 illegal fishing vessels from China being disposed to those waters. So what we're seeing from a country like China is a willingness to pursue a food supply, even if it's within another country's borders, so long as it has the means and can do so without significant punitive reactions. And with that, we're thinking that if a country has a limited supply of resources, especially one needed for sustenance, like fish, that country will likely consider illegal fishing in Antarctica's Southern Ocean, so long as it has the funding, resources, and ability to avoid major punitive
0: actions. Kevin, did you want to weigh in on this one?
2: The illegal fishing issue is an economic issue. And in that competition space, we are seeing multiple actors look to take advantage of the different legal frameworks that are surrounding Antarctica. And this is where it spills over into the security space. When we look at the national defense strategy and the concept of integrated deterrence, that competition space is across diplomatic, information, military, and economic domains. And so this economic domain, as it comes into the military domain, also has different equities in the diplomatic domain, one with the Antarctic treaty itself being a pathway to a lot of highly developed countries securing the area in the interest of scientific research, other countries that are also at risk with the rising sea level and also the competition for those untapped fisheries conducting the illegal fishing, these frictions can result in security competition as well within that space.
0: Hostilities and military activities are also on your list of challenges. Please expand on that.
2: When we go back to the 1950s, when the Antarctica Treaty was originally put together, it was due to the competition between the United Kingdom and Argentina in territorial disputes surrounding Hope Bay. But in a larger context, the Soviet Union was also in a position to do nuclear testing and other conventional weapons testing on the continent. And so the treaty was designed to reduce the tensions surrounding those different security equities of the different countries that were claiming territory in Antarctica itself. So when we move forward after the Cold War, that treaty's success kept it intact. But as we have the changing environmental conditions and the opportunities for access to the different fisheries that are there... As well as opportunities to expand different conventional military footprints, primarily for the space domain, or even from an adversarial approach looking at the U.S.'s posture utilizing military assets in order to resupply its scientific community down there, there is the potential for hostilities to rise across Antarctica.
1: To add on to what Kevin's saying, just approaching it from a U.S. perspective, so while the U.S. does not appear to engage in activities that violate the Antarctic Treaty, we do have a considerable commitment to the continent. The National Science Foundation's U.S.-Antarctic Program conducts research on the continent while transporting equipment and personnel between the continent and New Zealand and Chile. The U.S. runs the only research facility at the actual geographic South Pole. There's a separate American research station and territory claimed by the U.K. and another U.S. station and territory claimed by New Zealand. And that U.S. station works closely with the nearby New Zealand research base. The U.S. and Australia built a joint observatory on the Antarctic Plateau, which is Antarctica's highest point. There's the state's partnership program, in which each U.S. state's National Guard is partnered with one to two countries to conduct joint plans, operations, and exercises. And in this program, New York's National Guard is partnered with Brazil, and in 2019, senior military leaders from both parties met to discuss Antarctic missions and operations largely due to the New York Air Guard flying multiple missions to Antarctica on an annual basis to provide medevac and logistics support. So for the U.S., while none of these examples violate the treaty, with the U.S.'s presence and efforts with other countries, we think there's a fair chance our adversaries view our activities on the continent as a challenge to their international presence.
0: Do you have any concluding thoughts you'd like to share before we go?
1: I think a lesson to be learned from our article is that when we think of military engagements, we, rightfully so, often think of force-on-force wars or counterinsurgencies. But one thing to remember is that a military engagement can be something else. It can be a routine aerial or naval patrol to prevent resource depletion, like illegal fishing or drilling for hydrocarbons. Military engagement can be humanitarian relief, in which the U.S. supplies food, water, and medical supplies, or boots on the ground to provide security for building infrastructure. Or a military engagement could be something simple, like a meeting between domestic and foreign generals involved in our National Guard State Partnership Program. So, as a random example, if a country like Papua New Guinea wants to facilitate international involvement for potential humanitarian relief, it may want to reach out to the Wisconsin National Guard, since they're paired in the State Partnership Program and discuss ways in which the Wisconsin Guard might be able to support or preemptively try helping Papua New Guinea thwart a crisis. So for me, a takeaway is that as Antarctic developments take place, we may see the U.S. involved in, or at least
2: asked to support more diverse military engagements. When it comes to Antarctica, it all comes back to the idea of integrated deterrence. We have to be able to compete across multiple domains and the effect that we're seeking may not be in the same geography where we expect that effect to actually take hold. And so when it comes to Antarctica, it's not that it's just a distant continent. Potentially there's some fishing issues. It's the whole construct of what we're actually seeing in that space. Sea level rise may actually make it desirable for some of the countries most affected to join that diplomatic construct underneath the treaty in order to advocate for additional rights and considerations. As they continue to expand that diplomatic engagement, it may provide opportunities for the US military and the Department of State to engage, hear those concerns, potentially support their activity underneath the treaty construct, and grant opportunities that, while connected to the dialogue on Antarctica, could actually affect the region locally specifically as it comes to access basing and overflight in order to make sure that our deployable forces still can move freely in those areas across Africa and South Asia. Ultimately, when it comes down to the fisheries issue, when economic entanglement presents itself, it's an opportunity to both contest illegal actions in order to support already formed legal frameworks in order to push back against challenges to the world order. And so even though we see that currently in places like Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan, maintaining the rules-based international order in places as far afield as Antarctica are absolutely interconnected to the NDS objective of integrated deterrence.
0: Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the impact of Antarctic Treaty challenges on the U.S. military, you can read the article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 53, Issue 3. Ryan, Kevin. It was a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for making time for this.
1: Oh, this is great. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform.